Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, well, this month and last month, I'm uh, exploring some films from the mumblecore genre or style of filmmaking as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Pretension, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping it up by talking about Lena Dunham's 2010 feature, Tiny Furniture. Now, a little bit of housekeeping before I get into this. Clearly, you have noticed by now that the last episode I posted was June 27th, which at this point was two weeks ago, um, and just things have been um, a little bit crazy. As you may have remembered, I was taking an evening night class, so I was pretty much going from 7 in the morning till 11 p.m., sometimes 12 a.m. at night, and things were just very busy, very hectic. It didn't really give me a lot of time to do a lot of planning and extracurricular work, so some things fell by the wayside, including this podcast, so I apologize for the delay, and also before we get into the episode, I I want to preface that, not even preface, but kind of let you all know that after this episode, I'll be taking the rest of the month off. I just kind of need to get back in the groove of things, and and because of taking the class and other work, um, I didn't have actually enough kind of time or bandwidth to even actually kind of plan for upcoming months, so I'm kind of taking a little bit of a summer break, I guess, after this episode um, is posted. I'll try and keep active on the Facebook page, so that way it's not radio silence and deadness and just kind of nothing going on, but I need to kind of take some time to collect myself and get my things back together so I can kind of move forward for um, August and the rest of the year and just kind of keep the podcast going. So apologies for the delay and also just letting you know that there is going to be kind of future delays moving uh, forward until August when we can kind of get back on track. But um, wrapping up Mumblecore here with, I would probably say, and I'm kind of surprised that I'm saying this, the best one of the three. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen me tweet at David that I said... Um, uh, I, I was surprised by how much I love this film, and actually, if I had seen this movie in 2010, I think this would have been on my top 10 of that year. And 2010 was a, a great year for movies. We had, you know, The Social Network, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Black Swan, Eggs Through, Through the Gift Shop, um, Winter's Bone, and, and, you know, amongst many other titles. It was a really great year for film, and, and, and despite that, I'm, I'm still saying if I had seen this in 2010, this probably would have made my top 10 list. I was a really big fan of this. Um, I, I I think that, um, like Funny Haha, Tiny Furniture, like, so effectively kind of captures um, a mood of a specific time and place, and also, like Medicine for Melancholy, there's, there's such a clear, uh, like, authorial voice and, and, and an assured style of filmmaking, but Funny Haha was, was really kind of a, I keep coming back to the term in my head, like navel-gazing, um, and sort of lacking, like, a self-awareness, uh, basically. Like, it was sort of, it, it was it was focused on this time and place, but not really concerned with anything outside of it, and and really wasn't aware of or, or tried to pay much consideration to the implications of this time and place, what might be outside of it, commenting on it, that sort of thing. Um, whereas, I think Tiny Furniture used the, the kind of the mumblecore um, method of, of filmmaking, sort of the, the certain stylistic um, characteristics, and 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 uh, when it comes to acting and and, and low budget and societal kind of um, 
space, not spacing, but kind of a sta- status, basically. Um, it uses that, and it uses um, the the New York City kind of upper upper middle class setting to to comment on the period of the early twenty somethings, basically. Um, Funny Haha was kind of concerned, or not even it wasn't even concerned. Funny Haha was just kind of content to sit in that moment and just kind of be of it and, and not try to aspire to be anything else. Whereas Funny Haha, I'm sorry, whereas Tiny Furniture kind of sits in that moment, is aware of it, observes it, comments on it, and sort of looks outside of it, uh, or at least at, at, at larger themes, which I think was really awesome. Um, and, and I was skeptical of, of Lena Dunham, of, of Lena Dunham? Why am I pronouncing it like that? Lena Dunham. Um, I was skeptical of her, and I expressed this in the introductory episode with David because of, you know, this idea of, oh, what, what problems do uh, affluent 20-somethings really have? How is a title like this supposed to be relatable, or how is this supposed to be something that people can derive larger truths from when it's really like, oh, poor you, you're wealthy, and you've had a privileged upbringing, and you're coming back into a privileged upbringing, and, and, and yet... Um, she incorporates that those exact questions and those exact kind of complaints, not explicitly, but she deals with those themes in the story. Um, and it's it's not so much you know she's not trying to make <clears throat> a film which is commenting on you know larger global ills, but she is kind of um, using mumblecore, but viewing it or but kind of viewing this the same approach not the same approach, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm sorry, it's a little bit warm in here, I'm trying to record this with the air conditioning off, and it's a little bit humid today, um, but so basically she's approaching this period and this time and place the same way that Funny Haha did, or the same way that Medicine for Melancholy did, but she's looking at it specifically through a lens of a 20-something-year-old who is coming back after um, college, she's in this transitionary period, um, and she's viewing that time and place, but through a very specific lens, which is the lens of someone who does come from privilege and who's coming back to that, and I think that's important, and I think that's effective because the... not the thesis of the film, but a lot of the undercurrents of the film is this idea of how money doesn't solve the problems, and in fact, coming back into the situation by after being removed from it for about four years in, in uh, for college, you see how everything is different. We see how everything with Aura has changed and how she kind of doesn't fit into the place that she used to call home, and that's super interesting to me. Um, this film was sort of somewhat autobiographical for Lena Dunham. Um, the mom uh siri and the sister nadine are her real life mom and her real life sister um and um and and her her mom is indeed or uh, a a famous photographer um her her mom uh was a uh, was part of this um this photography collective called the pictures generation um i looked it up i still don't fully understand what it is but it seems to be a, a collection of photographers that whose work was displayed in uh the met and the, their work kind of all co- was kind of um tied together by a specific sort of themes and what they invoked. I can certainly post an article on the, on the Facebook page to kind of give a bit more detail about that. Um, but, uh, but it, it's not specifically a, a, a trying to tell the story of Lena Dunham's life. It's just kind of using that real life setting to, to kind of make a, not a, not even a surreal or hyper realist, but sort of using that setting to sort of 
make a comment on and tell a story about someone who would be in that situation. Lena Dunham is not making a film about Lena Dunham, but Lena Dunham is, ma- is using what she knows to make a film about someone who is like that and what potential problems she may encounter. She's not trying to make a story about her life, but she's trying to use truth from her life to inform the story that she is trying to tell. And one of those truths is this idea of how um, money provides neither comfort nor answers. Um, you know, sure, she went to she went to uh, college in Ohio. I, I don't know if it's it's not specifically mentioned in my mind. It was Oberlin. I don't know if that's actually true or not. But um, she comes back after four years to this comfortable and, and affluent upbringing. But there's she's got no job. Um, you know, her education, her expensive education, didn't provide her with any job or any real direction. She's got no sense of belonging. And, and there's there's sort of because of not just where she went, but also how life has moved on when she's or when she was gone. There's sort of these heightened expectations for her, considering what has happened while she's been gone. Specifically, you look at her sister, who is this teenager who's 17 years old, who is a high school senior, and yet she's won this award, which is like the highest award that a teenager in high school can win for poetry and her mom is so proud of her and meanwhile you know we get the sense that aura kind of feels like she's been spinning her wheels the last four years that she's been trying to make something of herself meanwhile back at home her sister has sort of gotten all the attention and gotten all the acclaim and it's sort of um this idea of like well you know you're you're 22 you've been in college for four years what have you done what what are you doing with your life now look at what your sister has done and that's none of that is explicit but it's all there in the subtext um and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure her mom and sister are not really like this in real life, but like I said, um, Tiny Furniture is not trying to capture reality, but instead is trying to comment on it. Um, it actually re- reminded me, I kept thinking of, of uh, the films of Whit Stillman while I was watching this movie, um, at least in the sense of how both of the, these filmmakers kind of came from affluence and privilege, um, but we're also aware of the problems inherent within that, and we're well-equipped to kind of deal with it, to comment on it, but Whit Stillman was much more interested in approaching it from kind of a a comedic standpoint, and he sort of had hindsight, Um, whereas Dunham was sort of in, you know, at the time in the thick of it. She was sort of observing it while it was going on, whereas Whit Stillman was kind of looking back and sort of thinking, like, here's why this was ridiculous, here's why this is strange, you know, and he kind of brought that experience um, that... um, well, as I said, he sort of brought the hindsight to it, whereas Lena Dunham, you very much got the sense of she was trying to make sense of a situation while she was into it and realizing that she came from this privileged and affluent background and that she had these resources and, and, and this this outlet available to her was going to use it to say something that only she was equipped to say in a specific way. Um, and what makes this film so effective is... Dunham's filmmaking techniques. I, I, I talked about how there is a really assured, authorial voice, and I was so impressed because I know um, she had made a film before this, creative nonfiction, but it's technically considered a short. It's an hour long, so this is kind of her first feature film, and man, it it it, fe- it features none of the roughness of Funny Haha or Medicine for Melancholy in the sense of the aesthetic roughness and kind of the crassness of of the the mise en scene, if you will, of Funny Haha. Um, and also doesn't feature, it doesn't really kind of have the on-the-nose, borderline kind of pretentious um, 
theses that that medicine for melancholy is is speaking to us you know there's there's sort of these roughness these idea of like filmmakers trying to kind of get a bearing on what they're doing and, and trying to figure out their own voice whereas this one comes out and just it feels fully fleshed out like lena dunham had this voice had been working on it, and now she's prepared and here it is and, and she's she's letting us into it and she's letting us see it and it's really really impressive um and i think w- one of the things which is really um great about this is that um specifically how she approaches it, is, is one, the way that she chooses to shoot the film with this observational shooting style. You know, there's no pans, there's no tilts, there's really no moving shots. It, a lot of it is just the, cam- the camera is stuck on a tripod and it's just looking straight ahead, whether it's down or up or just down a hallway. It just sits there and it just observes. And there's a lot of shots. Um, the only real, I don't even want to say camera tricks, but um, the only way that the shot is really varied is through um, shifting focus basically. Um, if someone is in the foreground or, and then someone's slightly in the background, just the focus kind of shifting back and forth in the conversation, depending on who's talking. Um, and it sort of uses this staticness and then, and precise editing to kind of really get a sense of, of feeling like we're stuck of feeling like there's no movement and there's no motion. Um, the DP on this film, Jody Lee, uh, I, I can't even read my own handwriting here. Uh, Jody Lee Lipes, I, I, I don't know if it's pronounced Lipes or Lipes, it's L-I-P-E-S. Um, he would eventually go on to direct and DP a lot of episodes on girls. Um, and he also, um, but more um, relevant to um, this film, or at least in regards to um, what his style would become and what he would kind of really hone was, he also eventually in 2008 became the DP on a, a film by Antonio Campos called After School. And After School is a disturbing film, kind of a mixture of drama and found footage. Um, you should absolutely go check it out if, if you haven't seen it. Um, but um, it, it, it's, its mood and its approach is very much the same way in the sense of it's just observing what is going on. The camera is just static and looking and just watching, and it's very objective. Um, in After School, that's offsetting because of the the material of that film in the sense of um you know popular uh girl in school dies um and a a kid is is hired to kind of make a tribute video about her but really what comes out is sort of the hypocrisy and and the uh the coldness that is um that is at play in these uh, various um, social circles within this school. So it's offsetting in the, in the after-school sense, but in this one it just sort of it puts you in the, the, the same mindset that Aura has. Um, it, it, it's basically emphasizing an emotional disconnect um, by not really having any, you know, conversations are not shot in the sense of you're kind of looking over someone's shoulder. Um, there's no handheld camera. There's no movement. So there's nothing which kind of um, implies or, or tries to evoke certain emotions from you. It just sits there and you just see what's happening. And so what you get is the emotions that are being conveyed by Lena Dunham and her actors. And I remember thinking that um, this must have been somewhat improvisational, not just because of what Mumblecore is, but also because of who Lena Dunham is and who the actors in the cast are. But um, apparently what uh, IMDb tells me is that um, because of uh, wanting to use non-professional actors or amateur actors, Lena Dunham was actually very precise with her script, um, which is fascinating because it does kind of feel like Lena Dunham is very good at um, kind of feeling like she's kind of speaking off the cuff or improvising a little bit or bringing um, subtext into the actual text. And because she's good at that, I just assume that's the approach that she took with Tiny Furniture in the sense of just kind of... um, 
letting that awkwardness and that uncertainty play out by just sort of letting people talk and ramble. You know, if you don't, especially in the in when you were twenty something and funny, haha, did this quite well um, in that phone conversation where our lead actress is having the conversation with the guy that she has a crush on where it's just you don't know what to say so you just kind of start rolling and you don't really know what's going and eventually um, emotion just kind of come out but no she actually precisely crafted the the script and, and directed people that way and it's amazing because it does have a very natural kind of feel to it nothing feels stilted nothing feels rehearsed it just kind of feels like these people would be saying these things at this time um the static camera also kind of adds to this visual um, separation of actors, which emphasizes this feeling of being stuck and out of place. Um, there's a lot of shots where uh, Aura is either um, walking away from the camera or walking towards it in a in a, uh, in a a style that looks like it's relatively far away. I mean, it's not. It's a New York City apartment. Even you know, even in a nice New York City apartment, there's still a limited amount of space. But you just kind of get the sense of her leaving where she where she was or, or trying to come back to it. and just the sense of long distance and just this you know she's going somewhere but where is she going and what is she doing and it's amazing um and also just how she stages um actors in scenes that subtly imply this visual separation there's a scene early on in the film when or first comes back where she's in the shower and she's talking to her sister who's in the bathroom with her but they are separated by this pane of glass in the shower and they're friendly and they're talking but you just kind of do get a subtle sense of there's something between these two and we know that they love each other because they're sisters and they're talking about stuff that they did in their past and yet here we have something physically a physical barrier between them and that physical barrier becomes more of an emotional and a mental barrier as the film progresses and we learn that Nadine is somewhat ashamed of her sister basically because of what her sister has not accomplished when she is doing something um with her life and you know she's popular and 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 she's won this big poetry award that is the highest award that any high school student can earn and yet what has her sister done and that physical separation becomes an emotional separation as well um you see this too in the scene near the end of the film when um Aura comes back and her mom is yelling at her for not having taken the garbage out and they're not standing very far apart from each other, but you can tell that um, that Jody Lee uh, kind of used a uh, a long uh, a long angle lens because of it because he keeps it's a subtle focus change. But when his mom or when Aura's mom is speaking, she's in focus, and then when Aura speaks, the focus shifts to uh, to her to keep her in focus, and it goes back and forth like this. And it's very subtle; it's not super strong. Um, you can see them clearly both when they're talking, and yet the, the focus just becomes a bit sharper when the, when the conversation bats back and forth. And that emphasizes, too, the separation between these two people and this fact of, like, this was her mom. She loves her. She was talking earlier in the film about, like, you know, can I sleep in your bed when you're here? And yet we have these little subtle visual hints which are just saying, like, there is something different and causing these two people to be removed from each other. Um, there's also an amazing shot, um, I, I wanted to take a, a photo of it, but I forgot, but when, um, the, uh, the character of Jed, played by Alex Karpovsky, who would, of course, go on to play, um, uh, Adam in Girls later on, not Adam, I'm sorry, uh, but Alex Karpovsky, he's, he's in Girls later on, you will recognize him if, if you've watched this film and you've watched Girls as well, but after, sh- uh, Aura gets permission to kind of let him stay there, uh, because, you know, he's, he's, shopping his tv pilot around he doesn't have anywhere to stay she talks her mom into letting him stay there until he's kind of got himself settled um and when he first arrives the the camera is set up in such a way where it's it's far away from the the front door of the apartment um and yet she walks in um with him 
slightly in the, you know, closer to the foreground is her mom, uh, and then even closer to the foreground is her sister. And it just has this, you know, there's three layers of depth here when she walks in, and, and they're all in focus. Um, it's not as though we don't have the shifting focus like we had with the, the, that the conversation between uh, Aura and her mom would have later on. But it just, once again, you do get, you do see this physical separation. There are these three layers of, of not just people but emotion and 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 status really because nadine closest to the camera she's the one that is kind of the star of of the family basically and the mom you know kind of uh the you know the one right in the middle and then uh aura who is the furthest away who is the furthest away emotionally and physically from her family it's it's an absolutely wonderful shot um and of course this film wouldn't work as well as it does unless you have great casting and, and great directing because the performances and the the subtext and the emotion that plays out between everyone is also helping accentuate this idea of of not just distance but of aura not really fitting in in her own home. I, I mentioned that Alex Kraposky as Jed. Um, you have Jemima Kirk who plays um, Charlotte, and she's uh, she plays obviously Gemma in Girls, and then David Call as Keith who is. Uh, love interest question mark um but these it's amazing because she writes these people and they perform it as though like these are actual people that exist in new york city they're not people that i associate with or hang out with but i've i've met these people i've seen these people these are people that really exist so there's a truthfulness there in the sense of uh, dunham kind of crafting these characters to be a certain way and and to to feel a certain type basically and that seems real but what seems kind of surreal is how she doesn't seem to really sync up with any of them. She's friendly with them, and certainly when it comes to Charlotte, you do you do get that sense of exposition and that they have a past and that there's a connection there, and yet there just seems to be something slightly off. She can't really connect with any of them. There's, there's sort of a romance with Keith, but he's also kind of a shithead, um, so you don't really want her to get together with him. Um, Jed is certainly very nice, but also he's not really emotionally on the same page as her you know he's kind of more interested in what he can do and also you do get the sense of he feels a little bit betrayed when um he's unable to stay at his mother's place because of uh her mother doesn't like him being there he, he had the audacity to mix uh whites and colors when he was doing the wash um and he's, he's very friendly but you don't really get much of a sense of rapport between the two of them like there there's friendliness there but there's not really chemistry and then even between um, Charlotte and Aura, you do get the sense of, once again, history, but just Charlotte's a, uh, on a different page. You know, she didn't go to college. She's kind of riding on, on her dad's wealth and connections, and she's really kind of unconcerned with her direction. So this idea that Aura has no idea what she's doing, she has no idea where she's going, that's not something she can relate to. And once again, it's all it's all kind of said in the subtext. There's no scene where Aura yells at Charlotte and just like, why can't you understand me? But just when she is brought to the gallery, it's just like she doesn't seem to fit there with her outfit and just kind of feeling awkward. And then even when her her uh, when Aura's kind of really only friend, Frankie, played by Merritt Weaver, shows up, you do also just kind of get the sense of, you know, here was her actual friend. Um, and they don't have any connection anymore. Um you know, this was the girl that she was waiting to show up the whole time. When she shows up, you know, she didn't even give her the address to the the, the gallery where um, Aura was was having her her film in air quotes playing, and just this thing of like, 
they were going to live together, but now Aura can't because of a certain situation that she's in and the excuse that she makes about that. And it's just Aura doesn't seem to fit anywhere and doesn't seem to fit with anyone. Um, and it is finally kind of brought to a culmination with this sex scene at the end between her and Keith, which is just, it's awkward. It's not shot in a sexy way. It's not shot in a dirty way. It's not shot, it's, it's not provocative. It just sort of is. Like, it's just kind of, it's just, it's sex, and it's quick, and it's kind of weird, and then it's done, and it really just kind of feels more like it was done just so she could feel some kind of connection, some kind of anything, and not because she was really into him, not because she was in love with him, not because she even necessarily wanted to have sex with him, but just because she wanted something different, she wanted some kind of connection. And at the end, it's not even that, that much of a connection. And it is also great because she doesn't Dunham doesn't end the film bleakly. This is not a, a an entirely bleak movie because while you do while you don't get the sense that she has found a direction, she has found some type of anchor in the sense of this undercurrent of her mom's diary and kind of continuously or or, or sporadically throughout the film, kind of going back to the diary and reading what her mom was writing when her mom was her age and just kind of seeing this fact that her mom was very much like her. Her mom had a lot of the same insecurities, a lot of doubts, and it's just like, her mom now, there may be a, con- a, a disconnect between the two of them, but there is something that is still going to connect them always, and that is that sense of like, hey, the shit that you're going through now, your mom went through that too, and your mom is doing well for herself now, in terms of her career, in terms of financially, in terms of her assurances of herself, And there is that subtle, unspoken hope of, like, things are going to turn out all right for her as well. And that's what I love about this movie is that it is so accurately reflecting an emotion of this transitional time. And yet um, there is also a hopefulness to it. Funny Haha was just sort of like, hey, here's this crazy fucking time, right? And then it ends and that's just sort of it. It's not concerned with anything else other than the moment. It has no scope to it. Whereas Tiny Furniture digs into the truthfulness of those emotions, the truthfulness of that time, but also looks past it, looks forward even. And I really love that about it. Um, if you want to rewatch this film, it is free uh, on the Criterion channel. I do not have it. I had to go to Amazon where you can rent it or purchase it. And I kind of joked when I posted about watching it on the Facebook page that by, you know, I took so long with this that when I when it was recommended to me, this film was free on Amazon. And it is no longer. It's uh, either a rental or purchase uh, on Amazon, on YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, or the PlayStation tour, uh, Store is where you can get um, tiny furniture uh, for rental or for purchase. So that does it for tiny furniture that does it for mumblecore that does it for june slash july once again this will be the last episode for a couple weeks i need to kind of collect myself and, and kind of um you know have a plan moving forward but the show will be back to its regular schedule program in august once again apologies for the delay thank you for sticking with me um if you want to get in touch with me about tiny furniture about mumblecore about this summer you know we got all the, the major summer blockbusters um out now and all that sort of stuff but um Drop me a line at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Um, you can also reach me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Be sure to catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly either on battleshippretension.com in the podcast drop-down menu or go to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. Um, and, uh, or check me out on iTunes. Be sure to uh, leave a review. I check there every now and again, though, now that I mention it. Um, I haven't done that in months and will probably forget to do so immediately after the recording of this episode is done. But... 
that's it. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. Um, be sure to tune in next month where I will be talking with someone, covering something, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 